Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Titus. And we'll continue on the same theme of family this morning as we reflect on this Father's Day and the culture that we live in and the responsibilities that we all assume. I want to especially offer my thanks and appreciation to Mr. Matt Marburger, our children's ministry director, Pastor Andrew Gable, our family ministry's pastor. So they join me on the platform, and we address certain things out of this text as the second portion of our message on Mother's and Father's Day. If you missed the first one, you can find it on the website and refresh your memories concerning the things pertaining to this text in Titus chapter 2. The reality of this text and the reality of life is that in spite of the admonition of the Lord and the clear instruction, families in the culture in which we live have been torn apart. Uh, families have been deconstructed, reconstructed into being something that the Scripture never intended them to be. And the family continues to face an assault in which the government desires to replace you as parents in the raising of your children the nurture and the instruction that you offer from the Lord. Some of the statistics that we see on the family today are alarming and frightening all at the same time. Currently, there are between 18 and 20 million children who grow up in single-parent households in our culture. And 80% of the time, the parent that is absent is the father. It is a crisis that has extended itself through all of our culture. And in my opinion, I believe that much of the cultural crisis that we find ourselves in today can be traced directly to the breakdown of the family. But it's the breakdown of the family, not just in the culture at large, but even in the church. And God indeed is grieved over all of that. And somehow we must respond in a way that fixes whatever is broken and addresses the problem from the, from the standpoint of Scripture. Did you know that the United States of America is the world leader in single-parent households today? And yet at the same time, we claim that we're the most advanced nation in all of Western civilization. As a result of this absentee parenting that takes place in our culture today, particularly the absence of fathers, children, and young people who exhibit behavioral disorders, upwards of 85% of them have been raised in a home without a father. When it comes to dr drug and alcohol treatment and abuse centers for children and adolescents, 85% of those children and teenagers come from a home in which there is an absent father. When it comes to other things like poverty, a child who grows up in a home without a father is five times more likely to grow up in poverty. And that sociological, socioeconomic standard has impacts for their life, not just in the critical child development years, but in their lives. So much so that those who grow up without a father are nine times more likely to drop out of school before high school. It ought to cause a shudder in all of us. What it makes very clear is the Scripture is right again. So God created man in His own image. Male and female created He them. And God blessed them, told them to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Genesis chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Ephesians, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In spite of that clear instruction from Scripture, we live in a culture that is so far off center that we don't even recognize the distinction between male and female but have between 40 and 64 at current count different gender identifications. Talk about foolishness. What are we to do in this kind of culture? How, do, how are we to respond? 
how desperate we need to be praying for these families that came to the platform this morning. But I suggest to you that the way forward is the same way it's always been. So we turn our attention to the Scriptures in Titus chapter 2. As Paul writes to this young pastor at a time in which there was grave opposition to sound doctrine, not just in the world, but there was some resistance even amongst God's people. We turn our attention to this letter written to this pastor, Titus. There was a, a legalism that was beginning to permeate the church where everything had to be a certain way, removing any kind of a personal responsibility and, and, and distinctions of, of being fearfully and wonderfully made, and just rotely going through the motions and not personalizing any of this. So as Paul writes, to set in order the church, which Titus was responsible for, as he writes to encourage this young pastor to face those challenges, he addresses a number of things, but here in chapter 2, he addresses the importance of sound doctrine, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Servants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, and they're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one, Titus, disregard you. Father, I pray that as we take a few brief moments to delve into this text this morning, that you would use our words to encourage the people gathered in this place, but more importantly, that you will use your word and imprint it on their hearts and mind and in their conscience, that they might know what sound doctrine is, and they might know that sound doctrine leads to sound living, living according to the book for your glory, a faith that is a sound faith based on the absolute principles of Scripture. I pray that you would guide my thoughts, my words. Bless Mr. Matt as he comes, Pastor Andrew as he shares, and together, a way of privilege as we share our hope and the promises of Scripture, I pray that you'd encourage us on this Father's Day for your glory alone, I'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You find within the text of Titus chapter 2 that Titus addresses, as a matter of fact and as an aside, the structure of the family, one man and one woman, love and respect and submission and training and instruction. But in the text in chapter 2, he takes it outside of the context of that nuclear family, a husband and a wife and children, and puts it into the context of the local church. And as he says to Titus, but as for you in these days of legalism, as for you in these days in which sound doctrine is being attacked and challenged, as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine, doctrine that is right, 
doctrine that is that is founded upon the truth, that truth that is found in the Word of God, doctrine that is imprinted upon us as we read the Scripture, as the Holy Spirit ministers to us, make no mistake, although Titus will quickly shift his emphasis towards the practice of sound doctrine, without sound doctrine there shall never be any sound practice. And you would think that churches in particular would get this right. If you've been watching the news this week, the largest evangelical denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention, just had a real clash in one of their meetings as to the role of men and women trying to blur the clear instruction of Scripture and become a little bit more inclusive. How did we get here? Because we have forgotten sound doctrine. We have moved away from the truth, a truth that is perspicuous. It is so clear. It is so understandable, and it manifests itself in real life. So, as he writes to this family of God, he is telling Timothy, not that sound doctrine matters to this world, although it does. He says, if we are to combat this worldliness and this challenge to sound doctrine, you must teach sound doctrine to the congregation and to the church. And that church, as it exists as, as a family, and we reflected upon that, the table of the Lord's Supper recently, we are adopted into the family of God. We are one in Jesus Christ. As we're gathered together here, we are gathered for the purpose of sound doctrine. Some say, well, that's boring. Well, then find another place, because every time I step into this pulpit, you will be directed to take your Bibles. Otherwise, I have nothing to offer. Oh, I've learned a few things in my life, and most of them were by mistakes. I could share what, what I did do and I shouldn't have done, and maybe what I should have done in its place. But there's nothing greater for me than to focus on the sound doctrine of Scripture and call you to accountability to that Scripture. This, this notion of sound doctrine is an orthodoxy, if you would. It is a doctrine that is authorized and generally accepted. It is generally accepted as being true in the covenant of local church communities and the covenant of those who call themselves Christians. And it is accepted as orthodox truth because it's perspicuous, it's clear. There's not a lot of debate on any of this. So, in this clarity, we're to preach a sound doctrine and orthodoxy, a complete set of understanding of who God is, who we are, and what He requires of us. But it results in what we often call an orthopraxy. What is an orthopraxy? It is the practice of sound doctrine. You see, legalism that builds itself solely on understanding sound truth and divorces that truth from the way they live their life becomes a legalism, a rule book, and a, a shelter from the reality of life. This orthopraxy based on sound doctrine means that our lives must be lived in a straight and right way. And what defines what is straight and right? Orthodoxy, the truth of Scripture, sound doctrine. Much of the confusion, even in the church today, over sex and gender issues and over marriage issues as a direct result of the bifurcation of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We say we still hold to the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 accounts, but we're not so sure that marriage should look a little different in our culture. That is incoherent. Sound doctrine must define what is right and wrong in any culture. But when we divorce those two things, right truth from right practice, we can cling to right truth and be good Baptists, but live with all the wrong practices saying, that's my individual freedom. And indeed, you do have a freedom to sin, or you have a freedom to be obedient to the Scriptures. So, sound doctrine leads to this orthopraxy of right living that reflects itself in being sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and reverent and teaching what is good and submissive and, and, and upholding the truth so it may not be reviled, a self-control, the model of good works filled with integrity and dignity and sound speech. And the Scripture's pretty clear. If you believe in sound doctrine, this is the way you need to live in your life. 
There's a catch in all of that. I will simply share with you an observation of my 40 years of ministry. Some of you say that makes you old, Pastor Jim. We don't have to listen to that. Well, I guess you don't. But my 40 years of ministry, most parents and most families start out in the right place. Most Christians do too. By sound doctrine. Because without sound doctrine, you cannot come to know Christ as Savior. You must acknowledge your sin. You must understand that God has made a provision for that sin and His Son, Jesus Christ. You must embrace the reality that God became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And He came bearing good tidings, a good message, good news, a gospel that rescues you and I from our sin. If we confess our sin and, and, and agree with God that we've fallen short and embrace what He's accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary, we could know Him as personal Lord and Savior. That is all based on sound doctrine. And what makes us think that based on sound doctrine of faith, i.e. salvation in Christ, we then are free to live our lives any way that we want to? In fact, you can't. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. What I've seen happen over the course of 40 years of ministry, and families in particular, perhaps in dads in particular, on this Father's Day, is this move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy to a heterodoxy, if you would. As our children are raised in this world, as they are given new ideas, as they begin to buck the system, if you would, to to think differently than what we've been taught to think in sound doctrine, there's then this tendency in parents to adjust their doctrine and orthopraxy according to the whims of their children. And when they get tested by their children, they want to be good moms and dads, so they'll give a little bit here and they'll give a little bit here, but they've given too much, and now it doesn't look like sound doctrine, and it certainly doesn't manifest itself as sound living. And now there's a lack of clarity on everything that pertains to life and godliness. Some of the most fundamentalist, legalistic, straight and narrow Christians that I've known grew with their children where they once had clear ideas of what it meant to be a a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad and to instruct their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and they were quick to share that with you, now now became very blurred because of the lives of their children. Moms and dads, if your children don't find their direction in sound doctrine, if you don't manifest and teach them how to live in a right way under the sun, They will be left in this endless sea of narcissism that is our culture today, and they'll buy into the line that they can live their life any way they want and still have Jesus, but that's not the gospel. It's never been the gospel. No one putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Our doctrine doesn't change no matter what the culture says. Our doctrine doesn't change no matter what our children bring home their education. Our doctrine remains the same, and thereby God's call to our practice remains the same, and we must never, ever, ever get in the way of that in the context of life. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, in matters of doctrine, you will find orthodox congregations frequently change to heterodoxy in the course of 30 or 40 years, and that is because too often there has been no catechizing of the children in the essential doctrines of the gospel. They don't know what sound doctrine is. Now, I will take it a step further than Spurgeon. Not only do they not know the essential doctrines of the gospel, if they do know them, it's by rote memory. It is by something that they were told. It's nothing that they embraced, and they didn't know what that meant in their everyday life. As Paul writes to Titus, he says, this is what sound doctrine means, so live your life as an example of that. So, what does this mean? We must fix what is broken. 
first in the church, their own personal families, and then in the culture. It begins in the family. It's a challenge in changing times, and it always demands sound doctrine that leads to right practice. The second thing that I'd leave with you is not only must we fix what is broken, we must learn to walk in our brokenness. Here's what I mean by that. That's not an excuse for failure. It's not an excuse for wrong doctrine or wrong living. It's just the reality that we are so imperfect. We are so inescapably selfish, even rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are so self-willed and tainted by the culture, even though we think we're not. It's easy for us to lose our way. You must acknowledge your sin and brokenness before you ever come to a Savior. But I believe that the church needs to acknowledge their sin and brokenness every day of their life and cry out, God, help me. God, help me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Remember what Paul said? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Will you get it all right? You won't. Will you get it all wrong? I pray not. But in the midst of all of that, you must still cling to sound doctrine. You must still cling to sound practice, and you must be willing to confess, to seek forgiveness and restoration and all that's provided to us in Christ. But we'll continue to walk in our brokenness until we hear the sound of the trumpet, and, and then I'd say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We're a work in progress, and that work begins with sound doctrine and leads to a sound living that doesn't go away no matter how much the world changes. May we take that to heart. And may God be glorified as we live as a family and in our families. May God be glorified in spite of our brokenness, Mr. Mann. Well, thank you for um, those words, those words of encouragement. Uh, Before I begin, I just want to thank Pam and Bonnie and Laurel for all their help with decorating for VBS. That's coming up on July 11th through the 15th. Uh, This is going to be a great outreach opportunity for our children to invite their friends, maybe individuals who don't know about Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Um, So we encourage you to encourage your children to come to our VBS event July 11th through the 15th. Uh, My father, he was saved later on in life. My dad, when he came to know the Lord, he was stationed in England in the Air Force. He heard about the gospel. He heard how he was a sinner. My dad knew he did things that were against the Lord's will. But he heard in that gospel message that there was a man named Jesus who did something for him. And that man, Jesus, he died so that my father could have a relationship with God. Now, my dad is not perfect, and I'm not perfect, but we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge and the will of our Lord and Savior. Fatherhood is a great privilege and blessing, and today many may take fatherhood lightly or common. Fatherhood naturally defaults to the role men play as completing some object in a family responsibility. But fatherhood is much more than doing our part in the relationship. Fatherhood is about building upon a life of another. It's called to seeing the value of fellowship, of spending time together, not necessarily on what we can see, but spending time on what is unseen, those deep conversations. Titus 2, verses 6 and 7, also calls believers not just to the task of holy living, but to the opportunity and the blessing of building into the lives of another. It is a call to share living. In Josh McDowell's book on how to be a hero to your kids, he describes six A's that every child looks for in their father. Acceptance, appreciation, affection, availability, accountability, and authority. These are the moral values that impact the lives of children. These are the values of seeing more importantly than oneself. Paul was encouraging the Christian leaders on Crete to live in such a manner of moral values of honoring and respecting God. Titus 2 verse 6 says this, Likewise, urge the young men 
to be sensible. The Greek word here for sensible is sophron, which gives this general idea of being in self-control. Paul often wrote of this doctrine when he was addressing the church in Corinth. It was a plea with the believers not to live lives in a haphazard manner, but to live a Christian life in such a manner as to be completing the mission well. It's like the athlete who is willing to discipline themselves through light, momentary affliction in order to achieve the goal. And setting the mind on the things of God more accurately spoken of in the doctrines found in verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The doctrine of general atonement is the Christian life of humiliation, of understanding that no one has a higher standard before God because of where they come from or how mighty they are in deed and action. There are no classes of people in the body of Christ. We are all We are all one body united with one purpose, each with a unique giftedness to build and encourage. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, male and female, slave or master. We all have come to faith by his mercy. In Philippians 3, Paul gives a long list of things that made him more qualified than any other person. But all these things Paul had counted lost in light of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. For Paul, his call to live sensibly came not from his religious actions, but instead from that which he had set his mind upon. The citizenship, my citizenship, is in heaven. Titus 2, verses 6, 7, and 8 go on to say, And all these things show yourselves to be examples of good deeds with purity of doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. The doctrine of sin calls us to live by the convictions of grace of God that instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It is seeing sin as a real action against a holy and righteous God. Our convictions of these moral principles are not the result of cultural norms or a local taboo. The doctrine of sin has been defined in Genesis 3 as the action and mindset against a holy God. All of us, regardless of if we like it or not, have union with this first Adam. We have been bound by the corruption of sin. And Romans 1 goes on to explain that even though they knew God, they refused to acknowledge Him as God. Their behavior and their mannerism became unsensible. In Paul's letter to the Romans, their conviction of pure doctrine was being corrupted. In judgment, they had become hypocritical, judging the actions of the lost world, but they themselves continued to practice similar things. They had forgotten the purity of the doctrine of God. That is, in the kindness of God, people are led to repentance. Paul was honest about his struggle between doing the deeds of the flesh in doing good deeds. He spoke of this inner battle, this fight that continuously went on. He even called himself a wretched man. Why can't I do what I know God wants me to do? Paul goes on to explain these good deeds are done so when our minds are set on the Spirit. It comes about when we understand that God is truly for us. It is Jesus who is interceding on my behalf. It is Jesus who has died because of sin. It is Jesus who was raised by the power of God. It is Jesus who is at the right hand of God. What can separate me from him? I am a child of God. I am an heir to the king. I am one with Christ. What am I doing? What am I doing? God in His grace has given us a helper. It is His Holy Spirit who longs with our inner being that helps us to cry out to God as Abba, Father. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the courage to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Peter also spoke in similar things in his first letter as a call of godly living. Peter used three distinct verbs of action within his epistle. Prepare, keep, and fix. 
Prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. And fix your hope completely upon the grace of God. Each of these actions surround the object that we no longer belong to this world, that we are now aliens, strangers, and foreigners of this present age. Titus 2 verse 8 goes on to say, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Our stance for God is not a fight of an argument to prove that we are right, that we are accepted, that we belong. Our call to stand strong at the hand of an opponent is to be done so as though the Lord willed it so. Recalling it was Christ who suffered and died, both for the righteous and the unrighteous. Christ was obedient unto death so as to be accepted not by this world, but did so that by his blood individuals would be justified before the Father. For the opponent, it was their need to add to the grace of God, which discredited their actions. Because their minds were set upon themselves, Paul described their deeds as being detestable, disobedient, and worthless. The call to be sensible and to live lives of self-control starts with the mindset, sit upon pure doctrine. Like Paul to Titus, Peter also reminds us of the mission So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. This is the will of God, that you deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and instead that you be put zealous to carry out good works of good deeds. You have been purified by Jesus for a holy purpose. Thank you. Well, thank you, Matt. Set aside by Christ for a holy purpose. You know, in the world that was described earlier by Pastor Jim that we see every day, uh, we know of personally in our neighborhoods and maybe sadly in our families, we may ask, what do we, what do, we do? What is my role? What is my purpose? And we often talk about this context Maybe either in overly optimistic terms, it's just all going to be fine. It's going to be fine in my own personal decisions and walk. It's going to be fine in this world somehow to sort itself out. Or negatively, in despair, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing that's going to change. And yet we're evidences of at least partial truths and falsehoods on both sides of that. And as we consider what is our role, what is our purpose in this setting and context of reality, and uh, even amongst those that know the truth over time, walking away and reaping the consequences of that in part, it's really important for us to make our own the truth of Scripture. You know, this word will be our guide in doctrine. It will be our guide in purpose. It will be our guide as we walk with God every single day. And sometimes as we sit here in our own context, we think everything is just fine and everybody is okay. It's just me that's just messed up. Or maybe everybody's fine, just like me. I'm fine. But if you read this this Bible, you realize it paints a perfect picture. God will always be honest with us, and his word is very clear and doesn't paper over the realities. And as I was thinking about this, and I was looking at Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to jump around very quickly in the word this morning. We can just sit there in Titus. We'll be back in chapter 1 here in a few moments. It's just a reality of faulty fatherhood. You know, even of those of us that get it right, quote-unquote, maybe that's not us at all. There's still areas that we know we blew it. You know, even good families, I was raised in a good family, and my parents were dedicated to make sure I knew the Lord. You know, as a young guy, I could sit there and say, I don't know if Dad got that one right. Actually, I know he didn't. I'll do better. And then you start doing it yourself and you realize this isn't as easy as it seems. And we talk about how the family of God, the church, is supposed to be there for one another. And and that's what Titus 2 talks about. Older instructing younger, younger, being willing to listen. All of us heirs according to the promise in Christ. But you know, when he gets into in the hallways after service and after prayer, sometimes that's hard. 
And you're like, I don't know if I like everybody in God's family. I know somebody in God's family doesn't like me. It gets a little blurred. So what's God doing in all of this craziness? Sometimes I ask that myself because he's got me in the midst of it. Faulty fatherhood follows the faultiness of all of us as we wrestle with the flesh and living in a broken world. You know, you may not even have had a dad in your life or maybe the dad you had in your life really wasn't that great. Maybe, you know, we probably all have a long list list of I wish things were different. Maybe you had a great dad. And you realize being a great dad is hard. Either way, we wrestle with this. And I'm just so thankful. I was thinking about this and just thinking about how God speaks about fatherhood. And then you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 68, he says, He is the father of the fatherless. Verse 5, the protector of widows. He stands up for those of us that are defenseless. He is the father of those that have none, even maybe a bad one. Whatever that may be in your life, he is the God in his holy habitation. And listen, if you feel all alone in life and if you realize that you have nobody but God, you're in a great place because it says in verse 6, he settles the solitary in a home. You might ask, what what home is that? Of course, we know ultimately it's heaven, right? We're looking forward to that, I hope. But he settles the solitary in a home even now. He leads the prisoners to prosperity. You know, we are all prisoners to something, either prisoners to the grace of God as we follow him or prisoners to sin in our flesh. It's great to be his prisoner, isn't it? He led us free when we accepted Christ as, his, as our Savior and the ability to be free from the slavery of sin. He's the father of the fatherless. So important to remember because he is our father. And as we think about this great family, just as a reminder of the importance of, of this church and of us as a part of this church and a part of God's family. In Mark chapter 10, again, you don't have to turn there. In this setting where the disciples are following Christ and this rich young ruler came and, you know, he wasn't really interested in following Christ. And the disciples said, well, what about, what about us? We've left everything. Christ, of course, as you're sure, I'm sure you're aware, responded to them and said, listen, there's no one who's left house or brothers, or sisters, or mothers, or father, or children, or lands for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and land, and all that. That means now, and in, in the life to come, eternal life. Now, what is this home that he settles us in? He's very clear here that as you follow him, you get a new family, and you and I both know that just because you got family of blood that maybe even is in a, the same home. It is in a single-parent home. It isn't always really great. But as we find community and as we make our own, this family that God settled us, maybe the solitary one, maybe the broken one, we find that love, we find that grace working through what he's already provided for us before we get to heaven. First Peter chapter 2 is another one you can write down. We don't have to turn there this morning. He reminds us of this unique calling, this unique role as families. You know, we had all these families standing up here saying, we want to get it right. Who, you know, who doesn't want to get it right, especially when you're starting out? And Pastor Jim said that that's, that's great. Most try to get this right as they start out. The question is, how do we finish? And that's driven by our understanding of sound doctrine standing every day on these words that God has given to us and as a family being there for one another. Notice what he says. We don't have to turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 9, you are a chosen race. God has chosen you, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. As much as these families stood up here and said, we want to raise our children the way God would have us, God is saying, you are mine And you are my possession, you are my family, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Aren't you glad that as we follow him, he gives us light in a very dark world? Maybe a dark past as you seek to do what's right. You look back and say, it isn't just everybody else that messed up, but I was really messed up too. As we follow him, he sorts that out because once, verse 10, we were not a people and we remember that. But now you are God's chosen people. Once 
you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Aren't you so glad that we have received mercy? Maybe as we think about the brokenness in our world or the brokenness in our past, we need to be reminded of the brokenness in us and the great joy in having forgiveness and mercy. And you know what? We look at those broken things a little differently when we're there with the Lord. A little less critical, I think. And even in light of this, talking about how honest Scripture is, and we just looked at a couple of passages written by a couple of authors, and we forget very quickly that the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark who left Paul. He abandoned him. Peter wrote First Peter. He denied Christ. And here, we even know that as Paul is writing to both Timothy and Titus in the pastoral epistles, Timothy himself didn't have a father present in the home. Apparently, or at least he wasn't spiritually impactful in his life. It was his grandmother and his mother who taught him the things of Scripture, who stood up and said, there is a purpose, there is a role, and we want our son Timothy to know the truth, the true God, that he would follow him. This isn't perfection in Scripture. It's honesty. It's brutally honest with us and our heart and our need for a Savior. God's Word is honest with us about the failings of the flesh, even of those that claim to follow Christ. And this isn't anything new, and I don't want to take up too much time, but even those that were outside the church observe the fact that it's all these messed up people. You know, we don't all have it together. It's all these messed up people. How, how, how is it that they all seem to even get along? We don't understand. And, and in uh, AD 170, of Celsus, he mentioned about Christians, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish you feel like a fool, <laughs> dishonorable, stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. God says, let the little children come unto me. Let the broken come unto me. Let the foolish come unto me. First Corinthians, Paul's pretty clear. He's like, yep, that's us. In fact, that's not just us because it happens. That's us because God's at work and he proves it as he takes those that were foolish, those that were weak, those that were not of noble birth. And he confounds the wise and he strengthens those that are weak. Verse 27, he chose what is foolish in the world to put to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And so in all this craziness, and then we come to Titus and we say, listen, this is great. The older instructing the younger say, it's not working so great. Or the younger being willing to accept it. And you're like, they don't want to listen. And it doesn't seem to work so great. The truth is it does as we follow it. The truth is he is making wise the foolish. And listen, we are fools. When we come to Christ, that's when we find wisdom. When we follow him, that's when we find direction. And we are weak Listen, guys, we can't raise our kids without God's help. He needs to be our strength. And we need the help of the whole church behind us and with us and with them in it all. And at the beginning of this, verse 26, he said, Consider your calling. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling. Consider where God has called you from. And it's interesting going to Titus chapter 1 and ask you to, just look at that. That helps us a little bit this morning with some guidance. What do we do? Where are the bearings in the midst of all of these things? Well, as you read with me, Titus chapter 1, it says, Paul, mind you, in verse 4, he says to Titus, you are my true t- child. You are my true child. We don't know of his children, but we do know that Timothy and Titus were at least of his spiritual children. There is a father figure here, as he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their eternal, I'm sorry, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages. And he goes on talking about this ministry that he has, but it's rooted in salvation for the sake of the faith of those that are elect of God, for those of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Listen, this first step, we jump over because it's an introduction, but it's the foundation to it all. 
Are you truly confident in your salvation? Is God the Father truly your Father? And are you growing, notice what it says, in the knowledge of the truth doctrine? Knowledge of the truth, personally, these things that conform to that practice that flows out of it. It's very convicting when we try to live it. We learn a lot of truth when we try to do it. It accords with godliness. In the hope of eternal life, we'll get there, which God, aren't you so glad, who never lies, promised before ages began. It's like Ephesians chapter 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's established beforehand that we would do. That's our purpose. But it starts with salvation. It starts with salvation. It continues through growth. And notice in verse 3, it impacts service. And this is how this whole church thing works. It's not just about me. Okay, I'm saved and I'm growing. I am not a mess up today. That is a success. Well, that's great. Verse 3, the proper time he manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is Paul saying, listen, I was commanded by God to serve and it cost him being beaten. It cost him being stoned to death almost. It, it cost him being shipwrecked. You read that long list of things that he suffered and there's a high cost to service. There's a high cost, dads, when you're tired and you get home and you don't have a lot of energy and now you've got to be investing in your kids, granddads, and you got a lot of things on your plate. And the rest of us, maybe you don't have any. Looking across the aisle and God's really laid on your heart, that family. It, it's a sacrifice. But this is Paul saying, this is what the command of God has laid on my heart. This is what's been entrusted to me. What's been entrusted to each of us? What's God been leaning on you? Listen, this isn't perfect. The question is direction. You know, faulty fatherhood has to follow first. It needs to be following Christ. Every single leader, if you're going to truly lead, needs to know what you're following. Everybody follows something. We must be following Christ first. We need to get that right. And secondly, faulty fatherhood needs to learn to lead and love. And you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 5, I'd ask you guys to just read through this and, and think through these verses. Maybe are very familiar to you, but starting in verse 25 of chapter 5, going down through verse 4 of chapter 6. You see, we have a heavy burden on us, guys. If we're married, we're told we need to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Just sit back and think about that. Is that an impossible task? Who died and gave himself for her? Love perfectly her like Christ loved the church. Learning to lead and to love is sacrificial. Even to the children, verse 4 of chapter 6, bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. He's saying, bring them with you. He's saying, bring them with you. And we have to ask the question, who are we bringing with us? Because it's not alone. And that's the whole point of all this, Titus chapter 1 and 2. It says it's entrusted to a few, yes, in specific things, but to all of us in regards to God's leading and direction, that purpose and that role. Aren't you glad that we have a perfect heavenly Father? A perfectly heavenly Father who guides and directs in all of this as we come to Him. That's the most important thing to get right. As we look at the list that Matt had, just very briefly as we close... Those things that every child looks to their father for, acceptance. Just looking at that, realizing that we're chosen in Christ. He chose us in Christ for the foundations of the world. Appreciation. Not that we are something special, but God values his work of grace in and through us, and he's calling us to submit to that. Affection, true, sacrificial, selfish, selfless, steadfast, love from our Father that we look to. Availability. This is the biggest one. Pastor Jim said we need to be praying. God's always there. He's always available. His distance from us isn't about Him. It's about us pursuing, responding. Accountability. He lovingly corrects us. Don't we all know His patience? You know, the more we think about how great a Father we have in so many of these areas, 
I guarantee you we're different ourselves and that transforms even our own leadership, our own love, and authority. He does command. Paul says this ministry has been given to me by the command of God and he commanded Titus to pass down the truths. There is a responsibility. Taking that, making that our own, asking God to help us be faithful so important. The questions are, will we follow? Will we follow him first? Will we walk in the light of the truth? Will we lean in even as we think about the great challenges, maybe in our past, maybe in our families, even now, certainly in our world? But God is the one who creates good and calls those in the darkness into the light, and we're a part of that. Let's pray and ask him to do that even now. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful that we can even address you as our Father. Really, our Father. You have purchased us by your grace. Not anything that we have done. You know everything about us that you have promised for every single one who is yours. That even those things in the past, whatever they may be, you work for good. And we are foolish until we come to you We are very weak apart from your strength. Just pray that you continue to open our eyes to areas where we're drifting from the truth, that you'd strengthen those areas in which we are weak and not faithful to what we know you would have us do. And Lord, that you would continue to work through this church in support of those, even those families that stood up this morning and said, we want to get this right. Lord, as a church, we want to get this right. Give us the grace and the wisdom and the perseverance to see that worked out by your grace. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us again as we close our service out. I see me turn your eyes.